Hey everybody, Magnus here. Look, I just want to go through something with you guys real quick. I just want to let you know that the It's All About Image miniseries that I've been working my way through before, the episode that you're about to hear, it, it was meant to be sort of a conclusion to all of that, but what can I tell you? The best laid plans of mice and men, something, something, something. So... Basically what I had to do, because of the fact that I couldn't really complete the It's All About Image miniseries the way I wanted to, basically I just sort of had to improvise for these other episodes. And, you know, for the most part, I think it's probably going to turn out okay. But I just wanted to warn you guys about it in advance. This really is not the episode that I wanted to release right now. This was actually supposed to come... Shit, I don't even think I had a specific release date in mind. But basically sometime early on in 2017... That's when you were supposed to hear the episode that you're hearing now, but like I said, shit kind of came crashing down around my ears, and I pretty much was left trying to deal with it as best I could, so here we are. So like I say, um, I do want to come back to the It's All About Image, at least concept, maybe not even call it It's All About Image, but at least come back to this concept at some point in the future. Don't know when that's going to be because, again, all of the shit that caused the, these delays and stuff to begin with, it's not like that stuff has gone away or anything. So not really sure when or really how I'll be able to complete it, but the time is going to come when, yes, I will be able to complete it. So that's pretty much what I just wanted to get out in front of, you know, just right at the top of this episode so that you guys kind of knew what to expect. But then again, if you're downloading this from... I don't know, like the, the Trennis Magnus Punches Reality Facebook page or directly from the Two True Freaks homepage. Ten to one, you probably know what I'm what I'm talking about already, but nevertheless, just wanted to put all that out there right now, and I think that's pretty much that. Now, enjoy the rest of the episode. I've studied the form of comics intimately. What you need is a hobby. Words and pictures, it could be more of an art form. What? are you talking about? I don't know. It's pretty goddamn weird. A guy dresses up like a devil and he's a blind lawyer, you know? We have to do Aquaman. No one with a lick of sense would watch that show. The word fan actually is a, an abbreviated form of fanatic. And there are some people who fit that category. I believe comics are our last link to an ancient way of passing on history. You can put on a uniform for football year-round, nobody cares. Basketball year-round, nobody cares. Put on a Star Trek uniform, people get a case of the giggles. Yeah, hi, somebody told me they make comic books here. That's from Superman? Smallville. You have been trying that Jedi mind shit on me since the eighth grade. It doesn't work. Oh, it works. You guys must read too many comic books or something. People do not masturbate in the DC universe. That was the biggest load of crap I've ever heard.
welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and I talk about comics, I talk about movies, and I talk about TV shows. That's the official slogan, you understand, but guys, the simple reality is, if records be checked, I probably spend more of my time talking about comics than I do all of the other subjects. And the reason for that is because when I was starting up with all of this, I made a conscious decision. I didn't want to be another movie podcast. Not that there's anything wrong with doing a podcast about movies. That's just not what I wanted to be. So if you look back at it, what you'll see is that my my first several episodes are actually front-loaded with a lot of stuff about movies, after which the movie stuff becomes a little less common, I suppose. So if you're any good at logical deduction whatsoever, what you can probably figure is this is a very long preamble into saying that I'm going to be talking about a movie today, but not just any movie, and I'll be coming back to which movie it is momentarily. But for right now, I've got a very special guest. Now, guys, this is a guest I have never had on the show before. I've wanted to have this guy on the show for a really freaking long time now, but my work schedule just didn't allow for it. His work schedule just didn't allow for it. We both had life stuff going on that just didn't allow for it. So it is with great pleasure that I welcome to the show for the very first time ever, the hair metal hero himself, Mr. Chris Tyler. Welcome back, or uh, welcome to the show, sir. How are you? Farewell and adieu to you fair Spanish ladies. I am doing excellent, Magnus. Thank you for having me on the show. Well, it's it's good to have you. I'm, I've been listening to you on Miscellaneous and Sundry Podcasts for quite a while now. Thank you. And I like your style. I like your tone. <laughs> I like your voice. I like your comments. I like I like a lot of the same stuff you like. If ever there was a logical person to bring into today's show, you're it. Well, and if there was ever a good time for it, it's now. All right. So now you kind of spoiled it already, you no good rotten scoundrel. But uh, what exactly <laughs> What exactly are we going to be talking about today? Uh, something fishy, I think. Fishy, <laughs> eh? Yeah. Yes, indeed. We're going to be talking about Jaws. And the reason for that is, look, Chris, I don't know if you're, if you would put if you would put it exactly this way, but I was talking to uh, Paul the other night, and one of the things that I told him is there are certain movies out there that it, I don't even like them anymore. I don't even love them anymore. <laughs> They're not even classics anymore. There are just certain movies out there I need. Oh, yeah. And there are very few of them, but Jaws is definitely one of them. There's something about literally from beginning to end there's something about this movie that it just kind of grabs me, you know? Uh, now, where where did it all start for you with Jaws? Like, where were you the first time that you saw Jaws, if you can remember? Oh, boy. Jeez, um, that's a that's a tough one. Well, it's been... I'm, I'm just slightly younger than the film, so um, it's always been a part of my life, especially growing up in New England. It's one of those things that's tied to New England specifically... Uh, yeah. Massachusetts and the islands 
So it's just sort of a, a way of life. It, it most likely would have been on home video, probably uh, from a, a terrible VHS dub from one of my father's friends at work uh, before we had cable television. So oh. that would have been my first experience with it. Um, I don't remember the first time I saw it, but it's one of those ones that it doesn't matter the first time I saw it. It's still here. Well, I remember it was sort of a mainstay on uh, television when I was growing up in the 80s. There was a point when I don't... I mean, the way it goes in my mind is somebody realized, holy shit, we have this vast catalog of movies and stuff that we can broadcast whenever we want. Well, now we want. And so there were certain things that were so common as to be ubiquitous on 80s television and Jaws was certainly one of them and so if I had to put a thumbtack in the map and say that's where it started that would be my guess but oddly enough it, it was one of those things that it's around and I saw it I didn't really care about it hmm. that changed starting and it's kind of strange to think that like this really is the way that things played out but that kind of started to change in the early to uh, early to mid uh, 2000s when all of the different movie studios and whatnot finally embraced dvd as a format yeah. and started releasing all of their catalog titles and not just releasing them but releasing them in really nice really high quality special edition dvds with as opposed to slapping a vhs or a laserdisc master on a dvd and sending it out something that was remastered specifically for DVD as a format and then sending that down the line. And Jaws was one of those titles that literally everybody was waiting for because Spielberg kind of sat on his most popular, his most famous works. He, he sort of sat on those for a lot of years there, and there was a lot of anticipation specifically for E.T. Yep. and for Jaws. And so I finally, it, it, in a weird kind of way, it's like watching a movie again for the first time. This movie that just I didn't really, I didn't love and I didn't hate. It was just kind of there and I didn't really care about it really one way or the other. Rewatching it on DVD and it's like, holy shitballs. This movie is fucking amazing. Yeah. And anyway, so basically, I guess just to kind of take it from the from the top here. Uh, we could summarize this movie and what it's all about, but my guess is anybody who's listening to this show, 10 to 1, they probably know the plot of this movie very intimately. So I guess <clears throat> to take it from the beginning, the movie starts in a, in a sort of warm kind of teenage, almost kind of teenage comedy type of way. In that you've got these two stone teenagers who are running around on a beach. They decide to go skinny dipping. And then things get dark. So I guess, how is it, in your opinion, that works as an opening sequence to what's ostensibly supposed to be a scary movie, at least up to a point? How does that play for you? Uh, it plays perfectly, especially if if the first time you see it, you're a, a younger uh, person. Um, it, it, it does, it starts in such an innocuous way that by the time, uh, what's her name? Chrissy? I don't even remember her name. Um, that's terrible. Uh, <laughs> by the time she's getting pulled back and forth, um, if you've not already gripped onto whatever chair you're sitting in, uh, by that point you are. And that 
first attack sets the tone for the rest of the movie. It's it's letting you know that something's not right in the water, and now you need to come along for the rest of the ride and just sort of deal with it and see what's going on. And it, it does start that ball rolling downhill of what happens to uh, Sheriff uh, Brody, Chief Brody especially. It's mm-hmm. um, it's not good. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, <clears throat> you mentioned growing up in New England, mm-hmm. and I guess the legend of this movie looms pretty large there. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> My assumption has always been that this is not even just speaking of the fact that this is a great white that we're talking about. A shark in general in those waters is pretty rare, is it not? Uh, Not if you look at the last couple of years. There's lots of sharks floating around now um, for some reason, but there's warnings all the time, uh, especially during the summer months when the water is slightly warmer i mean it's new england so it never really gets that warm but Mm -hmm. we do have uh we do have sharks up and down the coast um in massachusetts quite a bit so it's uh it's not as rare a thing as you would think and and i'm not sure if that's a change in their um hunting pattern or migration pattern or what what it might be uh but it's definitely real uh especially probably global warming uh well that's a topic for another time (laughs) (laughs) seems to be responsible for everything else. All right. Well, I just wanted to ask you that because, you know, as a resident of Texas, we may as well be landlocked because the <laughs> the beaches that we have here, and I speak specifically of, of Galveston, they are just so shitty. I mean, oh, my God. You know, I, I watch a movie like Jaws and I think, oh, wouldn't it be nice? I mean, I'm not even dreaming of California anymore. I, that's <laughs> We're way past that. You know, I mean. But it's just going out to, you know, Galveston, and it's like the water is all dull and muddy. And basically, if you get attacked by anything, it's going to be really one of two things. It's going to be like some kind of a fish that's nibbling at your your calf <laughs> muscle. And it realizes if you're edible, it's going to take more than he's got. <laughs> or there's going to be a jellyfish bobbing around that's going to uh, sting the it, fuck yeah. out of you. And, you know... Um, I'll I'll never not that it's anything to do with what we're talking about here, but hey, I've touched on it, so now I'm just going to go for it. I do remember that somebody on the beach one time, unbeknownst to her, was allergic to jellyfish stings, oh. and then she got stung, and there was this big to do. And I remember thinking, wow, so she's sort of inflating, kind of like the jellyfish himself. Yeah. And um, anyway, and as far as I know, it actually ended up turning out okay. She just needed a chance to flush the crap out of her system. But then once she did that, everything was all right. So those of you looking for a happy ending, there you go. If you're looking for a happy ending, I know a place in downtown Quincy that'll do that for you for a few dollars. <laughs> well, we can't talk about that on the show, though. So <laughs> We could. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, sure. But should we? <laughs> no, not, not right now. <laughs> so... Anyway, whatever happens, happens. The medical examiner gets called in, and his initial impressions are this is a shark attack. And this is all done very much by the book, but as so often happens in life, the bureaucracy starts interfering with the experts. And it ends up becoming a little bit of a political football. Can a a town that's dependent upon beach tourism in the summer – afford to say hey guys there's a shark swimming around in these waters and you need to close the beaches you know i i I can speak directly to this um 
it's in on Cape Cod and the islands especially that is 90% of their income is made during really really only 2 months really just July and August uh, so it is it it can it can cripple a local economy if um, if the beaches aren't open people aren't coming down because uh, I mean the seasonal beach stickers for non-residents are astronomically priced uh, most of the time there's a slight bump in what you're gonna pay for when you go out to eat mm-hmm. uh, it does it's it's massive it it really is important to the community uh, so it's it's one of those things that. The situation here, as horrible as it is, it's a real thing. It brings into the fact that there is a, a monster lurking in the water. But what do you do if you're Sheriff uh, Mayor Vaughn? Uh, you, you have the needs of the people to consider as well. My judgment call on him is that he's a prick, though. I mean, let's not let's not take things for what they aren't. It's totally the wrong decision to make, especially when people's lives are at stake. But I can understand the political and the economic side of it, unfortunately. Mm. All right. Well, and that was going to be one of the questions that I've got, because one of I didn't want to do like a a ton of research about this movie. What I wanted to do was just basically come into this episode and then you and I just kind of speak uh, extemporaneously. But what I ended up doing was just the other day, by coincidence, falling ass backwards into some guy saying it's not exactly, you know, that. Johnny is the real good guy in the karate kid. It's not like that kind of fan theory, but it's basically an interpretation of it that, you know, at every step of the way, Mayor Vaughn knows literally nothing throughout this entire movie. And so he only has to go by what he's by what he's hearing from other people, not all of whom necessarily have the expertise to make the claims that they're making. I mean, yeah, yeah, Matt Hooper is from the Oceanographic Institute. But he doesn't know Hooper. I mean, he doesn't know who this guy is. And there's a degree to which Mayor Vaughn maybe doesn't feel like he's necessarily obligated to listen to what this guy says just because this guy is saying it. And so, I mean, I guess there is no right answer here because no matter what you do, you're going to piss off a huge number of people. But... There is, I guess, when I really started thinking about it, you know, there is a degree of truth to that, that throughout, Mayor Vaughn is the guy that knew less than anybody else in this entire movie. Like, what do you think? Yeah, he's also somewhat willfully ignorant about it. At the at the end of the day, he's concerned about making sure that the town is getting paid what they need to get paid. And again, that's something that you would have is that responsibility. He's also, you know, ostensibly he's going to be looking for a re-election. Yeah. <laughs> so, it's it does bring into those bring in those real life factors into what what is a you know a, on the surface a pulpy uh, adventure story. Um, it's you're right though. There really I mean there's no easy answer on it. Um, but I I feel like after that second attack happens, that's just then willful ignorance. Right. Okay. Well, I I just wanted to toss that out there and uh, see what comes back to me. So. Whatever happens, happens, and what ends up happening is you've got this amateur shark hunting sort of spree that erupts, and this is actually one of my favorite parts. I mean, look, I love the whole movie from first frame to last. I love every single bit of it, but this is one of those moments that I don't know why, but I can absolutely picture this sort of thing happening because I, it's not exactly the same thing, but I went through something kind of similar 
you know, this same type of hysteria and kind of macho, tough guy uh, kind of posturing. What happened was I was in the seventh grade. And for those of you who are, really aren't all that familiar with my local area's geography, I grew up in, or at least came of age, in the town of Tomball, which is to say a suburb of Houston. And literally just a hop, skip, and a jump up the street from here is Huntsville, Texas. And for those of you who don't know, if you're going to be put to death in the state of Texas, you, it's probably going to happen in Huntsville. I mean, this is a this is basically death row. And it was a million to one shot. To this day, I don't know how it happened, but something like five or six inmates, and I'm talking like hardened, convicted felons. I'm talking about animals, just fucking killers, escaped Jesus. from Huntsville. So that's bad enough. But hard truth number two is that two or three of them had been cited in Tomball. <sighs> and so what ended up happening was you had these just want to be like posses and stuff getting thrown together with these drunken rednecks. I'm going to find this death row guy and I'm going to blow his head off, save the taxpayers a couple of bucks. You know what I'm saying? And nothing, nothing at all came of it. It was a million to one shot. A patrolman was just driving around and he, he was just in the right place at the right time, found them, and they, I guess, decided, well, I, we're going to take our chances on death row. Okay. Yeah. I, I Look, even when I was 13 years old, I thought, dude, you are you got lost and stupid, but whatever. <laughs> so and at least those guys were recovered from the local area. No drama, no no vigilantes running around, no men in, in hoods on horses and stuff like that. None of that kind of drama and but for a period of something like a week there i mean you want to talk about the paranoia that was going all around i mean you know people were doing things and saying things and whatnot that normally they would never do and so it's not exactly the same thing simply because of the fact that guys tomball doesn't have any beaches and so we're not likely to have very much of a shark problem <laughs> but it happened you know and so there's a even though it's not exact, like I say, it's not really the same thing. The the hysteria of it, I I find it easy to believe in. Like, what do you think? Absolutely. Um, anytime, anytime something like that happens, you know, some people's first thought is right, it's going to be a good excuse for me to go out and try to do something for the community, or maybe I just have my own reasons for doing it. But I mean, with escaped convicts that are coming from you know, hard time. Uh, part of it's going to be coming from a place of self-preservation. Some people just want to have an excuse to shoot somebody. Yeah, uh, pretty and, much. And uh, anytime it's a popular, not not that escaping from prison is popular, but anytime there's something that's popularly being discussed by a group of people, mm -hmm. start getting more than a couple of people involved. Cooler heads don't seem to usually prevail. And once you do get people riled up, it's hard to get them uh, riled down. Uh, so it's it's definitely a real thing. Um, and that scene in the in the movie is, I mean, it's a little bit different. You know, the the call was put out for, hey, I'm gonna pay a bounty on this shark. So, it, you know, most people at that point are just looking for money. I'm guessing that there was no money involved in this uh, 
<laughs> vigilante manhunt in Texas, though. Um, I honestly don't remember. I mean, you would think that because of the fact that we're talking about escaped death row inmates, you'd think that, you know, yeah, the state probably wants them back in a bad way, yeah. you know, but I honestly don't remember. Possibly. Yeah, it's a... Uh... Any anytime people get riled up, bad stuff can happen. And I mean, you you know they they do touch on that in the movie too. It's uh, Actually, you know re- what that that reminds me of something. Go for <laughs> to it. To tell man. you how, how serious this got, <laughs> I can't believe I forgot about this. All of these people, all, all that they had literally was the prison uniform on their back. That sort of <laughs> bright orange. Okay. All right. And so, I shit the negative. The mayor of the town said, and we all knew why he said it, but he said for the next, uh, basically uh, until such time as these guys are caught, try to avoid wearing orange clothes. It makes sense, you know. (laughs) And I thought, you know, that that is it. I mean, (laughs) this is insane. You know, this is the kind of pressure cooker environment. Anyway, so. It's it, it, in retrospect, it is kind of a fond memory because ultimately nothing really ended up happening from that. But it was weird times, you know, as you live through it. And uh, but this whole sequence is actually Matt Hooper's introduction into the narrative. And one of his first tasks is to examine the, the remains of the first victim from the beach. And his. Pretty much, I mean, I'm not sure what exactly you call it, but basically his diagnosis... It's an autopsy, essentially. <laughs> yeah, is that the coroner, originally, he had it right. This this was indeed a shark attack, and this wasn't a boating... And there's this really famous bit where he says, this wasn't no boating accident, This was, and um, so on and so forth. And one of the things that I got from that sequence when I was rewatching the movie for this episode is that number one, this is relatively far beyond Hooper's. Basically this is a little bit outside of his wheelhouse in terms of how bad the damage to the beach girl really was, but that's number one. But number two, it is so bad that, any idiot. Look, you didn't need to get somebody from the Oceanographic Institute out here to take a look at this. Any dimwit with a pair of eyes could yeah. look at this, what's left of this girl, and realize this was a fucking shark attack, okay? Yeah. You you don't need me to tell you this. And then number three, the exasperation of it. I mean, he, Hooper spends probably the majority of this movie completely exasperated by the fact that he's surrounded by idiots. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, God knows I can relate to that. But this is the first time that 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 I don't know his this veneer of kind of easygoing calmness that he'd had up to that point. This is the first, not the last, but this is the first time it really breaks. And you can see there's like a fair amount of disgust on his face. I mean, do you think I'm interpreting that right? No, no, no. He's he's bullshit. Um, and it's and when they pan to the to the coroner's face, you can tell the coroner is just hanging his head like. Yeah, I changed the report. Like, just it's never verbally acknowledged, but um, the, the chief of police is going on his assun- assumption that it was a, a shark attack. He called in an expert. Uh, what, I mean, what do you do at that point? It, you go, like they talk about, they're the only two sane people on the island. 
because they're the only ones that are willing to accept what's going on. It's uh yeah, he's he's bullshit and he, and rightfully so. Uh, the, after that had happened, after there there was even the whiff of a possibility of it being a shark attack, everything should have shut down. And again, the political factor comes in. What do you think? What the hell do you think Mayor Vaughn said to the coroner? Like we don't, we never get that exchange. I'm sure it was, hey, you, you know, <laughs> your practice is going to end. You're going to be booted. Uh, I don't know. It's, it's, it's one of those movies where you don't have the movie unless people make the stupid choices that they make in this. Agreed. Uh, and, and that same, I think, can be said for insert zombie movie here. Yeah. So. Any any horror movie really. Yeah. Well, the local fishermen are not completely unsuccessful. They do manage to capture a fairly large tiger shark. Oh, what? And... <laughs> oh, I know. How awesome was that? <laughs> that that guy is me. You know, he's right up there with that sort of jive talking pimp from Superman the movie in terms of they had just that one line. Yeah. yeah. But everybody remembers them to this day and probably. You know, this guy goes out to eat, you know, at a, the Mexican food restaurant or something like that. And everywhere he goes, people are like, what? He's <laughs> just a poor guy. Can't get away from it, you know. Um, like Shades of Wayne Knight, who's finally had enough. <laughs> of people saying, hello, Newman, and just snaps, you know. Yeah. So, but anyway, so these just drunken rednecks, they do manage to find, kill, and capture a fairly large tiger shark, which is all the political cover that the mayor really needs to reopen the beaches. But Hooper is at least at that. I mean, at that point, even Brody is kind of losing. He's getting kind of swept up in, I guess, the emotion of it all. Oh, finally, you know, we can finally get back to normal around here. The shark, we found it. He's gone. And Hooper's really the only one who tries to confirm the kill. Yeah. And what he eventually comes up with is the fact that the bite radius on this shark could not possibly have fucked that chick up as bad as she was. So, uh, guys, we may not have solved the problem here. And it's something to do with human nature. Denial is probably the most attractive mood to us when you think about it. And that doesn't even make sense. But there's something about denial. We all want to live in it. And I don't know. It's there you have it. And this is nevertheless inspiration for this actually is probably my second favorite sequence, because I think we actually sort of glossed over my actual first favorite sequence. We'll come back to it in just a minute. But my second favorite sequence in the movie is when it's after the dinner scene and after Hooper basically uh, cuts the tiger shark open and he doesn't find any human remains inside and there you have it i mean we know right then and there that this could not possibly have been the shark that is causing all the trouble so he and brody and this is i swear my second favorite part of the whole movie he and brody head out on the water and i the dialogue is i guess it's okay but i mean the music of it the the visuals of this really just kind of beautiful, not quite yacht, but it's just this beautiful boat that Hooper has and they're gliding along on the water. And it is an incredibly well filmed scene. Like, yeah. where are you on that? 
Uh, yeah, well, this is this is the scene that, as a kid, this is the one where you shit your pants. Uh, for for reasons I'm sure we'll touch on. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it, it, it's it, you also you're feeling the fear that uh, Brody has as well because Brody doesn't like the water. We we haven't talked about that. Uh, no. He is not a beach guy or an ocean guy. Uh, he it's not his not his habitat. Um, so the fact that he's out there willing to do his job now to get confirmation on everything is huge. Um, Hooper puts on his uh, swimsuit, you know the scuba suit goes under. They find Ben Harper's boat. It's it's sunk. There's a big hole in the hull. And uh, that's when we get <laughs> the scene that still, to this day, if I'm not ready for it, scares the shit out of me. He, Hooper pulls a big tooth out of the, the hole in the hull, and then <laughs> uh, Ben Harper's body comes sliding into frame. Yeah. <laughs> with And it's, it's starting to bloat, and there's an eye missing, and it's got that mask of death on it. And the the you know the the music the way it's filmed you're just not expecting it it's the perfect kind of jump scare to actually have in a movie it still holds up incredibly well and I'm actually got I've got the film on in the background right now it just happened oh boy <laughs> <laughs> well the um the thing about jump scares is they can be used very effectively yeah. in a movie what what bothers at least me is the red herring jump scare where Innocent character A innocuously surprises innocent character B, but there's no real threat. Yeah, the spring-loaded cat, they call that in the horror business. You know, you open up the door and the cat jumps out. Okay, nothing happened. You know? yeah. yeah. But when you get a jump scare because fucking Michael Myers zoom, zooms out of the closet and starts choking some guy to death. Yeah. Well, that is legitimate because of the fact that it's still – there is a threat, obviously – and so it's okay to use a jump scare for that. I just don't like the spring-loaded cat yeah. is, is, I guess, the, the point. Yeah. And that is the right way to do a jump scare right there. Yeah, it's intricate to the plot here. Yeah. <laughs> this, there's your confirmation. Um, yeah, this ain't over. Well, and one of the things that I kind of like about that is it's at once a fulfillment, but it's also a foreshadowing of, I guess, Brody's burgeoning understanding of the way that sharks at least in this movie the way that sharks can operate because when you think about it he's the only one in the movie who number one recognizes his ignorance and number two attempts to do something about it and so he studies i mean these days you just fire up google but he he checks out basically every single shark related book from the library so that he can understand what these creatures are, how they hunt, and how they do what they do. And one of the things that he sees is, as he's flipping through one of these books, is sharks, at least in this movie, have the ability to punch through the hull of a boat and sink it. So just by virtue of the fact that you're in a boat, don't necessarily think that that makes you safe. Well, we saw an illustration of that in one of the books that he was checking out, and we see it here that's what happened to ben gardner's boat and then of course we're going to see a little bit more of that before credits roll on this thing and i kind of like the fact that there are layers to it you know it starts off as an illustration and then we see it and then we see what it's like when it happens and i i like that oh yeah And, and the thing him doing the research he's a police officer he's profiling the shark the same way he'd profile a killer that's there's no difference to him it's it's reductive at that point. Something is 
affecting the people here. It's not a person, but it's killing people, so I have to do my job. I don't think that... I don't think that's brought up en- enough when people talk about it. At the end of the day, he is a police officer. He's trying to do the job that he's been hired to do. And it's just taking the form of finding a, a monstrous fish instead of a, a murderer. <laughs> well, yeah, no doubt about it. And so um, that is, I, I just, I, I like that whole sort of, uh, that whole just sort of uh, sequence, you know, and it's, I, it's just, I think, incredibly well done. So um, from there, we start getting into if if Vaughn had any kind of deniability, like moral and possibly even legal deniability up to this point, he loses it, I think, in the very next scene when Hooper and Brody try their best. They, they, they really do give a Theo College try yeah. to – talk some sense to him you know we might be able to save august if we close the beaches now and 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 starve the shark out i mean the minute we stop feeding him once we close the buffet guess what he's going to move on and he won't be our problem anymore and vaughn doesn't want to hear it i mean this is the fourth of july weekend and if ever there was a weekend they have got to be open Mm -hmm. this is it and as i say i mean i think up to this point you can maybe kind of indemnify Vaughn, because what does he really know, you know, and what little he does know tends to support keeping the beaches open because, hey, they did catch a shark. That's not the case anymore. And he now is truly a real bastard in the movie. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's no coming back. (laughs) Yeah. And actually, you know what, we'll get actually i've got another another note here but uh actually i want to save that for near nearer the end because i want to stick stick with where we're going um so from there it's fourth of july weekend the tourists basically pack up the beaches and there's a little bit of a false alarm and i think this is actually done really well yeah. there's a little bit of a false alarm with these bastard kids uh <laughs> swimming around with a phony baloney shark fin. And one of the things that I like about this, I mean, apart from the fact that it happened, because let's face it, somebody out there would do this. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I know what kind of a bastard kid I was. I can't promise you that I wouldn't have done it. You know, <laughs> I, 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 I'm not willing to make that claim. So, um, Spielberg is very specific in terms of how he uses the Williams, uh, that kind of driving two note shark theme in the, in this movie. If you hear the music, the shark really is nearby. This there, it's never a red herring in, in jaws. If you hear the music, the games are over and now shit just got real. And every time you see that, that fin sliding around, you don't hear the music. So subconsciously you want to believe this is not the shark, but there's a fucking fin right there. So what are you supposed to think? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's really well done. It is, uh, it is, it is well done because by this point the movie's already trained us that the shark's still out there. So, what's going to happen now? <laughs> we 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 don't know, but we know that something is afoot. And again, they do play with the the music the right way. Um, and at this point, the beaches, like you said, are packed. There's plenty of plenty of uh, floating food out there for the shark. <laughs> So we shouldn't be surprised if something happens. 
Uh, but they do. They play that false scare the right way, and it's done to further what happens immediately after that. It's totally pulling your, all right, all right, we had this fake scare, everything's going to be fine. But that's not the case because of, you know, what we've already seen foreshadowed with uh, Brody talking to his uh, kids in the, uh, the little dinghy that they have outside of the house. That's coming back into play right after this uh, fake scare. So, <laughs> And you can actually see that Brody was right to be concerned because the shark has no problem knocking that one boater guy's uh, boat over. Yeah, It's really easy for him to do. And this is probably the most – if you think about watching this movie from a child's eyes, the first time I saw this sequence, I saw this kid that was about the same age as me. Mm -hmm. He got knocked into the water where we know for a fact a killer shark is swimming around. Yeah. And then this kid had no choice but to sit there treading water and watch that guy get basically killed by a shark. And, yeah. you know, our, when I was about like eight, nine, ten years old, it was really easy for me to put myself in that kid's shoes or fins. And, you know, like what that would do to you, like as a like uh, as a kid, you know, I mean, what? You know, like the effect that 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 would have to have on you. You know, you just watch somebody not just die, but die horrifically. Viciously, yeah. yeah. It's yeah. It's a it's a lot to take. Um, yeah, and I, I thinking back on it, I don't know if that scene scared me as much as it probably should have. Because um, I think I think by the time we're of a certain age, we realize that you know kids don't die in movies. It just really never happens. What do you mean, the Kittner boy? Well, yeah, the Kintner boy does, but that's the last, the last kid. This is back when movies would actually kill kids. Thank God. And, and dogs, you know, because Pippin the dog got well. It's huh? implied. If you want to believe that Pippin just decided to run away randomly, no, you have room to believe that. <laughs> Another reason why this movie's in my top twenty because they do kill a child and a dog. I've made jokes on the the horror show that I do that my <laughs> if my my film would be the first ten minutes would be just dogs and kids getting killed. <laughs> just, just like nope my movie does not give a fuck what you think <laughs> so isn't that horrible uh, but uh i can't I, uh, you know what it you know what it, I, I think the closest thing that i could relate it to in my own life is if you've ever had a near accident like you know either a car's coming at you or you you know you're not going to be able to stop in time it's the same thing with this shark the shark's coming at him there's nothing yeah. you can do it's you're either going to surviving or not and that's not even taking into account the fact that there was a, a person that was just mauled in front of you and it's not something that they just brush off in this you know it's it no. it does cause some you know some serious uh mental trauma to the kid you know and it's again it's played up on in the sequels which we're not touching on but it's a very real thing i i can't i can't imagine seeing anybody die let alone viciously it's never happened for me um, anytime I've seen a, a body, it's been at a, a wake or a funeral. So it's just one of those things. I've never been around a, a, a corpse in any capacity, having seen the actual death. So my, my experience there is not what the Brody children's is. Yeah. Well, and for that, you know, we can be grateful. It's not very much fun to watch. I, so, <clears throat> Um, th this is sort of the turning point in the movie, though, that up to this point, Brody 
he regarded the shark as a problem to be solved. And in his opinion, the easiest way to get there was just to close the beaches and let, let the shark go away all yeah. by itself. And this is the moment where now that it's affected him on a personal level, I don't want to go so far as to say it's obsession, because we're going to talk about obsession in just a second. But, <laughs> yeah. But about there's that. A, a vengeance that, or at least a reckoning maybe, that he wants to have now with the shark. And again, it speaks to the fact that he is a cop, and this is how he knows to deal with the situation. You know, I don't think, I mean, like, I, I think on an instinctive level, a lot of men would probably feel the same way. But what separates Brody is that he's actually got, I guess, the mental fortitude to actually find a way to make that happen. And so it's a really powerful moment. But the thing is, there's a little bit of restraint to it. You know, it's not done kind of John Wayne style no. where he finally straightens up and glares into the distance and there's nothing but defiance on his face. He does straighten up. He does glare into the distance, but he understands I'm not John Wayne. Yeah. You know, I'm going to need to get help. And that is where the obsession comes in. First, <laughs> he has to, he has to convince Vaughn to sign off on hiring Quint to kill the shark. And this is, it's, it's a little bit sad in a way because I mean, Vaughn is basically a shell of the man that he'd been just 24 hours earlier. Yeah. He's still a bastard, though, and we can't... It, it's weird that... I forget the actor's name, but it's weird that he can... At the same time, he can summon revulsion and disgust and a little bit of hatred. He can also still be sympathetic in a weird kind of way. I, what, like, what are your thoughts there? Absolutely. At this point from not having taken the advice of his chief of police and a scientific expert who deals specifically with <laughs> sea creatures, it's all on him. The The fact that there was any more loss of life is squarely on him. As, yeah. as the mayor, it's in his purview to say, I need to do what's best for the community. I thought I was doing that by allowing the businesses to stay open, but now I need to, I should have done what's best for the community by keeping everybody safe. There's no the the buck stops there at that point, and you're absolutely right. It's we are reviled by him, uh, and it's just he's he's broken um, at that point. Um, <laughs> he's it's something that he'll have to live with for the for the rest of his life, and it's all on him. And. I, <laughs> I mean, I don't know how he was in the sequel for crying out loud, Jesus Christ. Uh, <laughs> that's the story for another time. Um, <laughs> yeah. At, at that point, you know, should have done what he should have done a couple days ago. Close the beaches, let people go out, kill the shark, get everybody out of there and have it be over with. But no, now it's uh now this is also like you talked about the obsession. This is also where the movie flips and instead of becoming... Instead of a monster movie, it then becomes a, a a chase movie. Yeah. And we basically get this sequence where Quint, Brody, and Hooper first meet each other now for the first time. <laughs> yeah. And Quint pretty well lays down what their working relationship is going to be like. And I don't know. I mean, it's just not Quint specifically, but I've known people kind of like Quint. 
And they're a little more rare just because of the fact that fucking I live in Texas and you're not going to find a whole lot of psychotic (laughs) fishermen around here. They're they're around, believe it or not, but they're not they're not as probably common as they are perhaps in other parts of the country. Nevertheless, you know, there's a there's a weird kind of verisimilitude to this that guys like this really do exist, you know, and it's like they just don't have a certain or they don't have the same survival instinct, perhaps, that that we do, you know, and what we eventually discover, and we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves is, but what we eventually discover is he does have, I can't say a logical reason, but he does have a reason for hating sharks as much as he does. I mean, there's a, it's a combination of fear mixed with hatred. Yeah. He also respects them though, too, because he, he respects what they can do. He never takes it for granted. That's the other thing. That's why, you, I mean, as, as off as Quint is, he's the only person you could have to go with you. You know, I, I, without him, I don't think the other two are coming back. Yeah, no, probably not. But let's just be realistic for a second. They really did need a bigger boat. Um, <laughs> yes, they because, did. you know, when I was when I was rewatching this movie, uh, for this for this episode, when I, I I got to that point I was talking about a while ago. I got to that point where Brody and Hooper head out on the water at night, and they end up stumbling across uh, Ben Gardner's boat. And I remember thinking to myself, <clears throat> you know, I don't know that the shark would have had as easy a time sinking that boat no. as he did perhaps others that that we and then. You know, well, I, that's the difference between wood and fiberglass. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> well, and I don't know what it should have could have, I suppose. So but it, in a weird kind of way, you know, and it's kind of nice to know that I'm not the only one who thought this ages and like years ago uh, on uh, Two True Freaks. Scott Gardner and Chris Honeywell, they did a commentary for Jaws, and one of the two, I forget which, but one of the two compared the Orca to the Millennium Falcon. Huh. Okay. And, you know, I could kind of see that, you know? And it, it's this kind of junky ship, and it's basically held together with chewing gum and popsicle sticks in a few places. And, you know, look, if what you're out there to do is catch some kind of little Mickey Mouse tiger shark, the orca is probably just fine. If what you're out to do is capture and or kill a giant fucking great white, maybe this isn't the right boat for you. <laughs> no. Well, if you want Quint, you get in his boat and he lays yeah. it on the line. It's his it's his vessel. He's the captain. So they kind of kind of put over a barrel. I don't think there was a chance in hell you'd get that salty old bastard onto a modern boat, especially after he, <laughs> after he just dresses down Hooper for having city hands, rich boy hands. It's that, that was not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> well, and this is actually by all rights, you know, this is the, this, the segment of the movie that really could have been where the wheels came off the wagon. Yeah. Because for the first time we're in this sort of prolonged sequence where nothing really happens. You know, you've got Brody, he's dropping a chum line. You've got Hooper, who's playing solitaire. And you've got Quint, who's basically manning the watchtower, but nothing really 
happens. And something has been happening every couple of minutes all through the movie up to this point, and now not very much is, is, is really happening. And I can't help but think, in the hands of a lesser filmmaker, if we were talking about anybody other than Steven Spielberg, this may have been where the movie lost the viewer. Like, what do you think of that? Uh, absolutely. Um, it's at this point they're they're on the offensive, more or less. So with that, it's usually unless something is happening, it is just a waiting game. They are on the offensive, but they have to wait. They they don't know exactly where the shark is. I mean, Hoop is bringing the fish finding equipment, but I don't think it's ever brought up that he has yeah. it again. Um, but this, instead of having this be a point where it's dull and nothing happening, the small stuff that each of the characters do clues you in more on who they are as characters. Um, so instead of having it be a, a, a wasted period of time where you are just watching the screen waiting for something to happen, the slow buildup adds to the tension of when are they going to get to the shark, which they, you know, by the time it does roll around again, it's pretty friggin' epic. But it's also the same point where we do get to get more inside the heads, the head of, of Quint specifically. Yeah. So it's, I wouldn't feel, I don't feel like it's wasted or that it is slow. I feel like it's necessary in this movie, especially since this major character is only coming in during the third act. So you right. have to kind of focus on what he's bringing to the table. Yeah, true. Um, and that actually sort of leads into Quint has giant brass balls <laughs> yeah. because of the fact that whenever they're dropping the chum line, uh, Quint basically casts his line off of his giant fucking fishing rod of doom. Oh, yeah. And there comes a point when he realizes he's gotten a nibble, so he stops nibbling on his Oreo cookies or whatever those are. And saltines. Oh, saltines? Okay. Yeah. And he stops nibbling on those. He gets himself into position. And then, and this is the part where it, where I became convinced, even as a kid, this man has no survival instinct. He chains himself to his fucking fishing rod such that if, God forbid, the fishing rod gets just pulled out of its fixture, he's going with it. Yeah. And... You know, I mean, dude, I know you think you're tough and everything, but if you think you can resist the pull of this shark just by bracing your feet against that little that little resting board there, you're out of your fucking mind. Yeah. Okay? I mean, I would never in a million years, especially against a shark, chain myself to the fucking fishing rod, okay? It's just not going to happen. But, you know, he, he does it. And there's – this is really the first time that Hooper's, I guess, competence – it's not that it gets called into question, but we do have to kind of wonder, is Hooper always right? I mean, yeah, he's, you know, he's got all of these pedigrees. He's an expert, blah, blah, blah. But he was openly doubting that this is, in fact, the shark. And we eventually discovered, no, this really was the shark. And Quint is the one who had it right, even though he's this kind of rednecky psycho fisherman. He still knows he, – he, he look. He doesn't have the sheepskin on the wall, but he knows what he's talking about. And there are instances, perhaps, where Hooper is wrong and Quint is right. And I kind of like the fact that the point of view kind of Spielberg. He was uh, he was confident enough that he's not gonna make us doubt Hooper's 
education. He's just going to say that maybe Hooper doesn't always know what he's talking about, but he keeps a balance every step of the way. Yeah. And if you think about it from like a storytelling standpoint, that has just got to be a colossal pain in the nuts. <laughs> yeah. Um, this so this so di- it, it's it's the classic case of one guy's got the education, the other guy's got the experience, mm-hmm. and you know if you could put both of those things together into one person. That would be great. Uh, unfortunately, they're two work that very, way. very different people, which, you know, that's how drama is made. <laughs> so, um, yeah, but uh, once once they're out on the ocean in Quint's boat, Quint is, is right. <laughs> you know, yeah. there's really yeah. no two ways about it. Not that Hooper doesn't do his fair share of, you know, doing what he needs to do to, to stop what's going on. Uh, but... You know, it's the the little things like him quietly ratcheting his his, uh, his pole onto his vest and not saying anything. <laughs> he's not going to let the other guys know. He's like, all right, here we go, and they better be ready to move when the time comes. But for right now, I got to do what I got to do, and I don't <laughs> think City Boy is going to be the guy to do <laughs> to do it. No, and that actually leads into, I guess, the chase aspect of the movie where it. It's one of those things that it can kind of sneak up on you, but even the even the the the, the film score, like the tone of it changes. Yeah. It goes from being what it had been, you know, the sort of scary Leviathan sort of monster movie type of uh, type of a thing, to the lead motif through a goodly bit of this shark chase. Yeah, it's the swashbuckling kind of pirate music, and. It is done so well, and the transition is so seamless that it actually, if you're not paying attention to it, you can just kind of get swept away in the moment and you don't realize, oh my God, this is like a real sleight of hand thing that's kind of happened here. Yeah, so It still impresses me. Uh, you're, you're along for the ride with the, with the monster movie, and then once the shark does show up next to the orca, it's... It's a completely different movie, and and I, like you said, I don't think anybody but Spielberg could have done it. This, <laughs> it's such in any other filmmaker's hands, it would have been completely jarring. You would have said, "What? This tonal shift is too much," uh, but not with this. It's, uh, and I don't know. I don't know how it is. I don't know if it's just the music. I don't know if it's just the visual choices. I don't know if it's just the way the actors are playing it. But I think if you take out any one of those things, then it's not the result that you get. It's it it, it would be like two different movies. You know, somebody yeah. fired up another another film, and because I mean, if you only jump into the movie at this point with them going out on the water to catch the shark, you'd never think it was anything but a let's catch the shark movie. Yeah, and it's incredibly perfect, and. From there, night falls, and we find out, number one, just how obsessed Quint is, and number two, why. So I'm going to let you take the lead on this. This is probably one of the most famous soliloquies of any movie ever, and I'm it's, dumping uh, it on. Yeah, it's, uh, it's so famous that I've offered any of my friends, if they can recite that as a best man speech at a wedding that I am in attendance of, I will give them $100. So far, nobody has taken me up on the offer. I don't know why. Um, But uh, this is more real life coming into play uh, and using an actual historical event. The the sinking of the USS Indianapolis was partially responsible for the 
the offensive in World War II for making sure that the Hiroshima bomb got delivered. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So we do get the tragic backstory of Quint. Uh, He was on the Indianapolis. Most of his crewmates died. They were sitting in the water for far longer than they had any right to be there before rescue came. And sharks ate the crew. The crew that wasn't already dead, the sharks ate them. And it was just there by the grace of God go I did Quint survive and other people didn't um, so his his personality comes into focus at that point after surviving a shark attack and seeing your friends and your crewmates die violently and having to wait for rescue I mean he puts it he's at the end of telling the story it's all in the line I'll never wear a life jacket again his, <laughs> his sense of self preservation is yeah I don't want to die but I'm not going to be afraid to it's, um, I mean, at this point, we see that he is Captain Ahab, really. I mean, that's what we're getting at here. It's, it's at this point, he's he's Captain Ahab, and the shark is Moby Dick. Not necessarily yeah. the sh- same shark that fucked him up when he was in World War II, but that vengeance that he has, that obsession that he has with killing sharks. When they, when they show his shack, it's all shark jaws all over the yeah. whole thing. I mean, that small visual cue kind of lets you know what's coming. He's not exactly all there and his goal in life is just to kill sharks that's what he does and <laughs> now you're gonna pay me to kill a big boy yeah all right i'll do it and i'm not gonna be afraid to do it either but i'm gonna do it on my terms <laughs> uh, yeah but the speech itself is i i couldn't do it justice and if you've seen the movie you know it's the music drops out the roy scheider and um Jesus Christ, I can't even remember Hoop's real name. Um, oh, Richard Dreyfus. They're, I mean, they're watching a master actor at work at this point. I don't even think they're acting. Their reaction to listening to Robert Shaw tell this story, I think they're just as sucked in as the audience by that point. That's really how it feels. It's so, it just, it sucks you right in. The music is gone. Everything is still. There's no punctuation of anything. It's just a guy telling a story, which on screen should be the most boring thing possible. But when you put it, the right words in the right actor's hands with the right direction, it's the, it's my favorite scene of the movie. It's the standout scene for me uh, among any of the other stuff that happens. That's where if, if the movie didn't already have you by that point, you want to see this friggin' shark die. I agree. And one of the things that I that I've always thought, you know, since I really started paying attention to Jaws, which I guess it was like 15 or so years ago, I was sitting there watching this stuff and I got to that scene. And number one, I, as you say, it's I mean, how can you not get, you know, sucked into that, you know? But the other thing is, again, if any other director was in charge of this thing, you know, I cannot shake the virtual mathematical certainty that we would have gotten a flashback to the USS. Oh, I, absolutely. Uh, I, I just, I thinking about that, you think about any of the current directors, it would have done the, the glossy fade into some sepia tone or cobalt blue flashback. The mm-hmm. camera would have been whipping around. We would have had a, an, an aerial shot of the sharks just swarming all the guys that were trying to survive. And, I mean, yeah, you know, I know they just made a movie about the Indianapolis with Nick Cage, so clearly nobody saw it. Um, 
but you don't need that. <laughs> All you need is the delivery of it, and you're hanging on every single word that he says. Like, you can't breathe when he's telling that story. No. And it's it's not just that it works without the flashback. It's better that you don't see it, because now you can imagine it, and the theater of your mind is going to make it Worse. perfect. Yeah. And I don't know. It's... I, I, I'm just very positive of the fact that this would have been, this would have been, first off, the movie itself would have been just totally different. I mean, God forbid somebody try making this movie today or something like it. Yeah. And it, I don't think anyone can make this movie today just because, you know, modern technology would, would allow the, the viewer to see the shark in ways that this movie couldn't show it to you. And it's a little bit of a cliche at this point to say, well, it's better that way. But today, that limitation just doesn't exist. And so there's, it, it's kind of funny the way that filmmaking changes yeah. cinema. Yeah. And I mean, I, I mean, I think anybody that's a fan of this movie knows the difficulties that they had with the shark, which is why it mm-hmm. wasn't shown. So when the time comes where they actually do have to show the shark... It works because you've had that build up. Because to this point, we've seen POV of the shark swimming. We haven't seen the shark actually bite anything. You never see that. You see the after effects of what's done. You never see the actual attack itself happen of, of something being bitten. So by the time he is starting to bite the orca, by the time Quint's face to face with them, the movie's been building to that point to actually show you how vicious this thing is when it decides to attack. Right. It's, uh, it's, it's all more buildup. And again, that's, you know, part of why the stuff on the, on the water is slightly slower. So by the time they're plugging the barrels into them to try to slow them down, that's when you get the best view of them. And then that's still not even the full view of here he is, you know, but that scene where the head, his head pops out of the water and Shida just slaps back from it i mean that reaction is so real i i have that to me looks like a real reaction too i I, maybe spielberg said hey you know something's gonna happen i'm not gonna tell you what but this thing's coming out of the water just do what you're gonna do it's it's so real um and it's because they've they have held off on actually showing you the full context of this animal Um, Mm. yeah it definitely couldn't be done again i mean not for any of the sequels, not for any other killer shark movies that have come out, of which there are many. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and as much as I love the ridiculousness of Deep Blue Sea, it's not Jaws. No, not on its best day. Well, and from there, the next day is when shit really starts getting real. The shark attacks the ship not long after Quint finishes up his tale of doom. And knocks out the power, does an incredible amount of damage to the ship. Yeah. And so the crew, they pretty much have to spend most of the next day working to repair the damage. And this is when things truly do go off the rails now. The shark attacks, and Brody attempts to call in the Coast Guard, but Quint goes full psycho (laughs) and smashes the crap out of the radio using a baseball bat. And this is when, you know, this is one of those moments in the movie that kind of lost me when I was a kid because I was fairly normal. 
And so the idea of watching somebody go completely fucking crackers because of the stress of the situation and not to mention their own hatred and obsession, what that does to people. And I'm sorry, there's no way you can explain that to a nine or or, or 10 year old kid that, you know, there are certain things in life that you can experience and you can even survive, but you don't really come back from. You know, you're still alive, but you you don't come back from something like the Indianapolis. No. No, I mean, how could you? And, I mean. <laughs> and yeah. Quint is a very broken man who shared some of his brokenness with the radio. Yeah. And this, I think, is the moment when if it wasn't obvious to, to Hooper and Brody before, they now realize we picked the wrong guy. <laughs> Uh, I still think they picked the right guy, but uh, yeah, it's not um, maybe not the best pairing, but I, I I still don't think they would have had success without him. But that's me. <laughs> well, irrespective, this guy definitely has a screw loose. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, well, it's and there's some other subtle hints dropped before we you know like when they're doing the telling the stories, he's talking about his third wife's demise. So clearly he's had at least three wives. Can't imagine why, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I love it. That yeah, that that is a funny one. And um, anyway, so they they uh, <laughs> they sink their uh, second or third barrel into the shark. The idea being that honestly, the first barrel should have brought the shark to the surface. It didn't. Yeah. The second barrel didn't. And even the third barrel didn't. And there comes a moment when Quint even outright says, and you can actually hear the fear in his voice now, this isn't possible. Yeah. You know, I mean, one is all I should have needed. But if I needed two, fine, I'll use two. Three, and he's still not getting dragged to the surface? Yeah. There is literally nothing in, in, in Quint's considerable experience to account for that. And you can even see it on his face. He, it's almost like he just kind of turns a little white, and you can see almost the exact moment that Quint shits his pants. Yeah, it's they're not dealing with any regular great white. I mean, this is smarter. You know, it has to be heightened. It's it's a horror movie. It's it's the smartest great white and the strongest great white of all time. So yeah, even even Quint is not ready for that. Thought he was, he was not. And so what they end up doing is basically. They all, none of them are really willing to verbalize it, but what they decide, I guess they consider it to be a tactical retreat just between each other. Inside, they all know we're hauling balls back to the land. Okay, fuck this. Yeah. And unfortunately, that was the wrong thing to do. Quint pushes the engine too hard, and basically it blows up. And so now they're stranded in the middle of the water. They can't, they can't continue forward back to, uh, back to land. They can't even radio for help thanks to Quint. And so there's literally nothing to do but wait. And they don't have to wait very long. No. The decision is made. And this is actually, again, a really well done part of the movie. Quint swallows his pride and says to Hooper, you know, what exactly can these toys of yours do? Like, what can you do with this? Yeah. And when when Hooper finally goes in the water, 
Quint never says so, but you can see it in his eyes that he never respected Hooper until this moment. Yeah. But he has Hooper has Quint's respect now. Yeah, well, when you're willing to go into the anti-shark cage and go into the water after you've seen what he's already done to the boat, that takes just as big a balls as uh, deciding to be a crazy fisherman. <laughs> <laughs> and the the shark cage doesn't really last very long. No. Hooper's plan doesn't work, and he he has to pull a tactical retreat of of his own. The shark demolishes the cage and, in short order, attacks the boat and kills Quint. <laughs> and oh, yeah. this is the moment that when you when you really think about it from the time the movie started this movie was always going to come down to to Brody and the shark yeah and this is the moment when it finally happens Brody has got to dig pretty fucking deep and Quint couldn't do it Hooper couldn't do it and it's now up to the cop, who is completely out of his element. He knows what he needs to do. Yeah. It's just, I think, fair to say he doesn't know how the hell to do it. No, he's not a seaman, and he, he never has been. And and this is <laughs> where the, the yeah <laughs> seaman. Uh, this is where the ticking clock is 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 going on. Hooper's nowhere to be found. Quint's been devoured after putting up a valiant fight, um, but the boat is sinking. There's Time is running out, and Brody's managed to pull himself up onto the to the crow's nest as high up as he can go on the on the boat. And it's he's got a gun, and he's either going to sink and drown, or the shark's going to get him. Um, there's there's no time left, and it's I mean it's again it's one of those things. Thankfully, the shark decides to eat everything, so yeah. he's eaten one of the containers of compressed air that uh, Hooper's brought along for the. Uh, to go underwater, and it's it's one of those things. If he didn't have that, you know, <laughs> Brody's yeah, that's not it. making it. And it's <clears throat> and it's not like it's this. You know, he does sack up and he does put a little grit into himself. You know, he's the smile, you son of a bitch. But before that, he misses. I mean, yeah. it's not it's not the the superhero moment. It's a real guy who's probably shitting his pants. Nobody else is around him. And if, if if the last thing he does is to kill this shark, he's going to try to do it. But it's not, it's, you know, it's not the slow. This is not fun and games. <laughs> no, it's not the slow mo explosion. It's I I need to do something here just so that I don't get eaten. You know, it's yeah. it's self preservation even more so than uh, vengeance or or anything else at that point because no one else is around. He's the, he's the only one left. And I, and I guess, I guess that's what kind of makes heroes heroes, right? You do what you have to do when there's nobody else that can do it. And right. it's just a, a, the nature of that circumstance. And it is a, a fantastic finale. I mean, after you, that, I mean, that's a boat, that's a boat that's sinking, you know, after we already heard how horrible it was when the Indianapolis sank. So, I mean, it's, and this is only one shark that he's going to deal with, but it's the, strongest shark of all time and Brody's got to be the one to do it and he does and he does it with a line not with a smile but he does do it with a line and it's uh oh man is it one of the greatest explosions of viscera in cinema history I agree and like the thing about it is the thing that kind of works for me about it is it has that kind of visceral impact of you know you finally get like this cathartic release the shark 
we've seen him do the impossible, but he truly cannot survive this. Yeah. But the other thing is, it does kind of leave you with a little bit of a logical problem in the script that, you know, how do you kill a shark like this? And this is a completely valid and believable way. How realistic it is, I have no idea. Yeah, I mean, I, there are... I think Mythbusters disproved it, but hey. <laughs> oh, they did? Okay, I well. I think so. But it's still, it's cinema. It's cinema, yeah. baby. All the same is... I I don't think, you know, even if this doesn't, even if this isn't, you know, the most realistic way to kill the shark that anybody could have come up with, I don't know why, but I still, I buy it. Oh, yeah. You know, and it needed to be this way. And there comes this moment when Hooper, unbeknownst to anybody, actually survived his ordeal, breaks to the surface and makes for makes for Brody and they see each other and they don't even really have very much of a conversation because at this point, what is uh, number one, what is there to say? But number two, you know, I do kind of consider myself to be a little bit of, I have an interest in psychology and when you go through an experience like that with somebody and then you come out the other side of it, you need to have that moment where you can just kind of sit there, you can laugh and you're not even, you're communicating, but you're not even really like talking anymore. Yeah. And I don't know why, but it plays for me is what I guess I'm saying. I know I'm rambling here, but it plays no, for me. It's what it, I'm saying. There, there really is. It's one of those things in cinema where you, we've seen what happened. We don't need them to have any more dialogue. And there, there is a little bit of jokiness to it, but at the end of the day, the two of them survived. And honestly, they survived the shark, but, you know, and that's what we wanted to see. We wanted to see them destroy the shark, survive the shark. Now they got to get back to dry land, you know. And if this was the only movie that they did, guarantee of that, not necessarily. I think they show the shoreline during the credits, but, you know, that uh, it's the same time the audience gets to breathe finally at that point, too. The audience has survived yeah. the same ordeal that the main characters had. Right. So it's... You don't need to say anything either. You just sit there and you smile and go, God damn, that was a good movie. Mm. Well, and like the best part is even Vaughn kind of has a happy ending here because Quint died. And so now they don't have to pay him. (laughs) I wasn't even thinking of that. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, the town, basically, they got rid of the shark for free. There you go. And. You know, everyone loves a happy ending, right? And oh, yeah, so, we'll as you were saying earlier, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, it's a it's it's a well earned climax and happy ending because it's Agreed. I mean the the stuff that everybody went through beforehand. That's I, I, some people complain about movies giving a happy ending where they might not have deserved one. I, if this ended any other way, if this was closer to the book, I, it wouldn't it wouldn't be this movie. Uh, the the book is far more dour um how does um, the shark die in the book it's it's similar but hooper dies hooper doesn't survive so brody's the only one left hooper's banging um uh brody's wife they're having an affair it's like that's not i get it it was the 70s it was a pulp book that's not what i have this that would have made this movie two 70s um and i like a lot of 70s movies you know because of the the darkness that they have but that's not what that's not what you have want, would have wanted to see with the end of this movie. You you want to see these these guys who have become friends 
because of shared experience dealing with this horrible, horrible town and the and the ignorance going on, you want to see them have that happy ending and get away. And it's totally yeah. earned. And Spielberg doesn't make it seem forced or cheesy. Uh, every bit of trouble that they've had during this movie, you're ready to breathe with them at the end. Agreed. And I, I just dig this movie. Again, it's one of those things where it... I need this yeah. movie. It's you know? perfect. You don't. Nothing in this movie needs to be to, to be changed. Not a line. Not a frame. Not a note of the music. It's perfect the way it is. If I could change anything about this movie, and this may get me in Dutch with some people, <laughs> but if I could change anything about this movie, honestly, it would be Lorraine Gray as Ellen Brody. I mean, I, there's something just about her voice that just bothers the shit out of me. And if I, I look, I, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that it, it, it makes logical sense because it doesn't. I'm just saying yeah. that it, there's something about that actress that just bugs the fuck out of me. Well, I, so. what I kind of appreciate if, about that is she's not the most attractive woman. Uh, it's real. I mean, mm-hmm. most of the people in this seem real. They don't seem actorly. They don't seem like they're putting on airs. They seem like real people, especially, you know, most of the townspeople, like the old guy who's got the really bad swimming cap. This is like, was he even an actor? It's just like a regular guy. You know? <laughs> yeah. it's, it just seems like real people. And I, and I think if you had had some bombshell or somebody that was a little more actorly in that role, it, it wouldn't have played as real. She just seems like a real, you know, like a, a native New Yorker that's come to the islands who's, you know, just a real person. Um, you know, that verisimilitude is, is huge. I mean, if anybody is cartoony, it's Quint, but even so, it's not cartoony to the point where you think he's in a different movie. Yeah. Well, yeah, fair enough. I'll ride with that. So just a couple of other little notes and stuff that we didn't really go over, mm-hmm. mostly because it's my fault. Uh, the movie... Following the first shark attack on the beach, uh, the movie starts with uh, Brody, or the Brodies, uh, waking up in the morning, and then Brody himself basically hits the road and drives to work. I want that truck. Oh, yeah. Truck's great. (laughs) It is just so 70s, and it just looks so manly and tough guy. I just fucking want that truck. Yeah. Which, when I think of Manly, I don't necessarily think of Roy Scheider as much as I, I, I love him as an actor. He's not the alpha male. No. Really. No, he's very, like, fatherly. You know, he's got that kind of manly fatherliness, but he's not, like, manly manly icon of the 70s. And, and, you know, like the overbearing, domineering way, you know? No, but he also, see, he also seems older than he is, too. That's the other... It's like a... I don't know, it's... You just read experience and age off of him, even though he's not really as old as you might think he is. Yeah, very definitely. And another thing that I sort of overlooked, and this is going to be a segue actually into something else, but uh, another thing that I kind of overlooked in my sort of summary of all of this is just before the uh, great shark hunt Involving the entire town. Just before that gets underway, the first salvos of that are actually the night before where these two drunken fishermen uh, basically try (laughs) catching the shark themselves. And guys, I'm going to say this is I I talked about my second favorite scene in this movie, which was 
Brody, uh, Brody and Hooper, they're cruising around on the water and it's dark. And you have, even though the shark isn't really around, you still have the suspense that at any moment the shark could pop out of the yeah. water and just gobble them up. That's a real thing. And in that sequence, and I, and I cherish it for that, but this pier incident sequence is by far, hands down, my favorite part of this entire movie because it speaks directly, like, like I was talking about earlier, the paranoia of it, but also that kind of gung-ho, tough guy, wannabe, I can do it all myself kind of guy. There would be people out there that would try something like this and the shark would come along and eat their sack lunch, maybe literally in this case. <laughs> And, you know, it, it is true that $3,000 does buy an awful lot of roast, but it doesn't buy a new husband. <laughs> no. no. And, or at least, not unless you decide to go mail order, I guess. Do they but, even have mail order husbands? I only hear about the brides. Well, I... I think I, there's I'm, an I'm untapped a, market here. Well, I'm trying to be egalitarian. I have to assume that, the, that these markets are not prejudicial, you know? But it does kind of make you wonder why brides don't go the other way because some of these American women I gotta tell you by all means send them overseas so um, <laughs> but the music in that in that sequence the aesthetics of it yeah. it is the perfect scene and I, I just cannot get enough I mean I, I, I can't get enough of that scene and it's not just because of the music although there's that but there's there's this moment where right as the pier turns around to pursue the guy that got dragged into the water. It's like the, the music was already really suspenseful to begin with. And then just bam, out of nowhere, here's the shark theme. And it's like, we're intruding into the middle of the shark theme. It's just so incredibly well done. And to me, it kind of speaks to the fact that, you know, John Williams did an amazing job um, with this score because I was so excited about doing this episode with you that for the past probably week or something like that at work, I've just had my uh, my headset on because I, I don't like earbuds. I hate earbuds. So I've just had my headset on and I was listening to the score from Jaws. And one of the, thing, one of the things that I like about it is it doesn't follow the sequence of scenes as they're shown in the movie. Hmm. It It presents the music in a way that in its own weird kind of way, it's almost like it's an album unto itself, you know, and it has different moods and changes in tone and all of these other things. And so it doesn't precisely follow the movie. And I think it's actually better for it because the, the bit with where the son, I forget his name, uh, copies, uh, Brody and his movements yeah. that actually comes. I want to say that actually happens after, this the the music where Hooper and Brody find uh, what's left of Ben Gardner, even though that scene actually occurs earlier, it's presented later on the album. And I think it actually works better that way. It's like a real album. And anyway, I mean, we can't not talk about the amazing job. I, you know, I, John Williams made his bones based on this score. Everything that he did after Jaws was because of Jaws. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, it's all been said before. I, I get that. But it, it needs to be said again. Man, he brought home the bacon in a big way with this movie and the music. 
Yeah, it was back when they still would actually have themes and late motifs and, and stuff that you would I- directly identify with a character or a feeling. And uh, I am one of those people that also laments the the direction that score has gone in modern cinema um, to becoming something that's just so background, so much wallpaper. Um, when when music is good and and you notice the music is good, I don't think that's a problem. I, I know that's not the current philosophy with filmmaking, but if anybody, I mean, you know, there's a handful of guys. John Williams, probably the apex. Uh, Jerry Goldsmith, uh, you know, to a degree, uh, you know, Silvestri and uh, James Horner, like those guys, you know, when you're listening to their music and you makes you, and it makes you want to listen to their music and then watch the movies that the music is related to. And uh, I mean, let's be honest, the Jaws theme is probably one of the most identifiable themes of all time. And, no question. And, and, and the guy who's had the, got the most identifiable themes of all time is John Williams. I mean, it's Jaws, Star Wars, Raiders, Superman. The, the list goes on. You you know his his music. Yeah. And it is certainly one of the most fruitful uh, partnerships in all of cinematic history yeah. where something happens, or at least something used to happen, when Steven Spielberg and John Williams work together – I would say maybe even more than Steve, than uh, George Lucas and John Williams working together. There's yeah. some sort of strange – they get each other in a weird kind of way that it, it doesn't come along just everywhere in cinema. It's a rare thing. Yeah. And it's uh, – so, I mean especially with Williams. Williams' background is jazz, and it's like you would never think of jazz, which is oftentimes this – what perceives to be uh, an unstructured – thing um there's plenty of structure in williams's scores yeah now the the final note i had and originally i was just gonna avoid talking about the sequels altogether just because of the fact that (laughs) i'm of the opinion that look i'll recognize the fact that there are three godfather movies there are parts of the godfather part three that i'm just really not all that enamored with But I will recognize the fact that, yes, there are three Godfather movies, but I'm kind of reluctant to acknowledge that other Jaws movies exist just because (laughs) – Fair enough. (laughs) It's – what's left, you know? I I mean my brief rundown on that would be the second one I find incredibly boring because it is such a boring carbon copy of the first film. I mean there's nothing in there that to me is – eh, I'd rather just watch the original – Jaws 3, at least it took a different tact. Um, and I I enjoy Jaws 3 for the ridiculousness of it. At mm-hmm. that point, make it something completely ridiculous. You can't do Jaws again. And Jaws 4 is just... Well, what the fuck? It's Jaws 4, man. It's a, it's a, it's a fat in the wind, is what it is. <laughs> it's, a, it's a paycheck for everybody involved. Uh, I mean, that being said, if there's a giant shock on the screen and it's something that's Jaws related, I'm probably going to give it a few minutes of my time. I'll give it all my time if it's the original, but, you know, if I catch the sequels at certain points, I may I may watch them. But Jesus Christ, that sequel. How the hell is Vaughn still involved in this story? Come on. Yeah, and that actually was the part I wanted to talk about. What I heard, and I now I'm blanking on where I heard it. No, actually, I think it was um, Paul's... Uh, Paul uh, Spataro's Is It Jaws show, the show he did specifically about Jaws, somebody mentioned that 
Jaws 2 was originally it was going to go kind of in a different direction where we saw that Amity had become basically a ghost town. It doesn't matter that that uh, Brody and that Hooper killed the shark and saved the town a couple of bucks in the process. It doesn't none of that matters anymore. Amity has been branded as Sharkville. (laughs) And people aren't going to go there anymore. And the effect that the events of this movie had on the town and basically turning it into a ghost town. And, you know, I kind of, you know, look, I'm going to sit here and tell you, we didn't need a follow up to Jaws. But if one had to be made, that is actually something I'd kind of like to see explored because it shows, I guess, the consequences of. You know, this isn't going to be just a carbon copy of the original and the events of the original. There were consequences for that. You know, the town didn't just get to get off scot-free and everyone just forgot about the fact that, hey, that little boy died uh, there, you know, last summer. And you know what? Maybe I'm not going to pay a visit there this year because (laughs) I'm I'm rather I may need my legs someday. You know, I don't know. (laughs) And. I would kind of want to see that movie, you know, and what that did to the town in terms of just tearing it up and, you know, all this. And somebody decided at some point along the way, you know, fuck that. We're not going to do that. That's a little too cerebral. We want sharks killing people. That's what we want. And make with that. And they went a different direction. And it just, again, I don't need a sequel to this movie. No. I'm not going to watch the, the the sequels. I've seen them enough. But if one had to be made, that's the one I want to see. And that kind of leads into something else I wanted to ask you about. What do you think about making a gritty prequel to Jaws? It's basically what what uh, Brody was doing in New York before. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm having no. a hard time keeping a straight face. Ir- irrelevant. Sorry. Irrelevant. Um, he was a cop in New York. He decided to go to an island to avoid the horrific stuff that he was dealing with in New York, only to find out that it really doesn't matter where you go. There's always horrible stuff that can happen. That's absolute. that would be a waste of celluloid, even though they don't use film anymore. And uh, two hours of my life as a viewer, something. No, no, I'm telling you, this has got a lot of disco potential. You could have, uh, start the movie with the Indianapolis and then Quint gets back and he gets off in uh, New York for some reason, because that makes no sense. But that's, damn it, that's the way we're going to do it. And Ugh. he passes by Brody's dad, and they have this weird mystical connection with each other for a second. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. Tre- tread lightly, Trent, as you, tr- you trample on my dreams. Uh, no, that's, that sounds absolutely horrible. If you want to tell a, co- a gritty cop story, just make up your own new gritty cop. Like... Especially if you want to make it a period piece in the in the 60s or 70s, that would be fine. I'm all for that. It doesn't need to be Brody. <laughs> like no, I don't need to see the the uh, the struggles of Brody romancing, uh, you know, his wife or uh, you know the love triangle involved. Uh, it's no, it's irrelevant. Everything that we need from Brody, we get in the fact of why he is where he is now, and who, why he's the person he is. It's already part of the narrative of this story. <laughs> Nothing else needs to be said. I don't need to see a story about the Indianapolis, even though they now have made one. Uh, you know, I'd rather just watch a documentary about it at this point, because nothing is going to beat Quint's speech. <laughs> All right. Well, the other thing, and after this, I, I will let you go. But the other thing I was thinking was, again, if, if sequels to Jaws had to be made, to me, it makes more sense to follow Hooper which I realize wouldn't have been a possibility for Jaws 2 because he was yeah. busy with um, 
the alien movie, fucking uh, Close, Close Encounters. Encounters. And That's so why he's would... dead <laughs> in the sequel. <laughs> he dies. It's not even Dreyfus. Well, wouldn't he have been the more likely character to follow since his day to day life is more likely to yeah. take him into? It just seems to me that that would have been the way to go. Not that we need a sequel. I'm just saying that if a sequel had to be made, Hooper's the more logical character to follow. Yeah, and I honestly, it's set up in the movie. He was going to go on that expedition to see sharks. And he said, well, I got one right here. Why do I need to go? The sequel could have been him dealing with something else shark-related outside of Amity. You know, they could have changed the location. It totally would have changed the feel. But that's not what they wanted. It's like, we want to hit all those same beats that people went to see. And yeah. That's what you're going to get. But, uh, yeah, enough. he definitely would have made more sense. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's basically all I really had for Jaws. Now, do you have any other parting shots, anything that we haven't talked about that you want to toss in here? Uh, don't forget your rubbers. <laughs> that's about it. <laughs> all right. Cool. Well, uh, why don't you go ahead and tell, as if they don't know, but just in case, why don't you go ahead and tell the listeners where it is they can find you and uh, basically what is it that you do? Uh, um, I talk out my ass a lot on podcasts. Uh, no, um, <laughs> I'm all over the Two True Freaks network. Uh, I'm on the Vault of Startling Monster Horror Tales of Terror, which is a uh, roughly uh, every other week show on horror-related uh, television, uh, sorry, movies uh, that I do with uh, Chris Honeywell, Luke Giaconetti, and his brother Jay Giaconetti. I do uh, a weekly show with Scott McGregor called Weekly Heroics, where we cover a lot of the superhero TV, TV shows that are on right now. Mm-hmm. Um, doing a side project called Cast Protection, which is about Stranger Things, the Netflix show. With oh, Jonathan, that's so good. Yeah, with uh, Jonathan Kreitz and Dave Atterbury. The show is not dead. It's on a small hiatus until we uh, come back for some more follow-up episodes. And uh, I pop up all over the place. Um, you know, if you can't get Michael Bailey or Professor Allen or Shag or, uh, you know, somebody else that's way better than I am at podcasting, <laughs> I'm usually uh, popping around uh, back to the bins and other places. So, um, yeah, if you dug what I, uh, what I bring to the table, check out any of those shows. If you like me, tell a friend. If you hate me, tell two friends. So that's about it. <laughs> okay, well, I just want to thank you for, for joining in. It was a really pleasure. Happy elevating this this discussion <laughs> i don't think i elevated it but it was a pleasure to be on and uh, anytime you want to talk about anything i'm your man great well i'm gonna i'm gonna take you up on that so excellent anyway so i think that's uh, pretty much it for me now just by virtue of the fact that i've got freaking no idea when this episode is coming out um it's gonna be soon but other than that <laughs> i don't really know i can't really tell you what i'm gonna be talking about next week but whatever it is i'm sure it's gonna be awesome so you need to listen yeah (laughs) but um anyway so i think that's pretty much it for me this week so bye everybody i will see you next week
As superhero movies are becoming mainstream entertainment at theaters around the world, comic fans also have plenty of heroic action on the small screen to keep them sated while waiting for the next blockbuster. We are in a golden age of superhero television shows, with plenty of offerings from both the Marvel and DC universes, and the trend shows no sign of slowing down. To chronicle these recent shows and even examine some of the classics, we are proud to present Weekly Heroics, a two true freaks guide to heroes on TV. In every podcast, we'll be doing recaps of individual episodes of one Marvel show and one DC show until we catch up to them or some supervillains shut us all down. My name is Scott McGregor, and I'm the fastest podcaster alive. That's what she said. And I'm Chris Tyler, one of your agents of cool. To bring you this podcast, we each have to become someone else. We each have to become something else. Two, two, Hello, ladies and gentlemen, this is Jason Giaconetti. You may recognize my voice from the Vault of Starling Monster Horror Tales of Terror. And if you don't, you should be listening. But today I need to ask you a few questions. Do you like big bugs and you cannot lie? Other robots just can't deny that when the Queen of Space walks in and puts a blast in your face that your gears get sprung? Are you deep in the bee we're sharing? Are you hooked and you can't stop staring? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then have I got a podcast for you. Bots, Bugs, and Babes, the B-Movie Podcast. From classics to cults and all the yummy, yummy cheese in between. Look for my new show, Bots, Bugs, and Babes, on the Two True Freaks Network and on iTunes. That's Bots, Bugs, and Babes, the B-Movie Podcast. Double J on the Triple B is your hookup. Holler if you hear me. So I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trennismagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at TwoTrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. 
So you get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy. Yeah.